Well, today we're continuing our series on David, a man after God's own heart. Today we're looking at living above retaliation. Have you ever been in a situation where you have been tempted to retaliate, to fight back? I think of a story that a relative of ours tells. Of they were there at Taco Bell, and they were eating their food. This was when they were in high school, and one of their friends got up to, I don't know, use the restroom or get their order or whatever it was, and they did a trick I'd never heard of before, and uh, kids don't do this, <laughs> and especially don't do this and say you got the idea from me. They took a hot sauce packet and carefully opened it and then inserted a straw into it and then put all of that down into their carbonated drink. Now, I hope you're not smiling because you've done this before. And so then, when the friend came back, they said, I, I have this drink that's just really, really good. You should try. What is it? Okay, well, okay. And, and so, took a really big of hot sauce, you know, on the back of her throat, and she's coughing and sputtering and all these other things. She goes to grab somebody else's drink to try to get relief, and it had hot sauce, too. <laughs> And I hear that story and I think, oh my goodness, what would you do if that situation had been done to you? Would you be tempted to be thinking and surmising? Payback. I don't know. How about this situation? So we were camping one time in Indian Boundary over in Tennessee, beautiful little spot. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard to get away from work with all of your things to the campground, get everything set up, you know, food, all the rest before it gets dark. And on this occasion, there was a big group that was coming from all over, almost a reunion of sorts. We were there, the tents and everything were set up. There was even a fire going, but supper was kind of the last piece. And so while we were having supper uh, of hot dogs, the sun was, had pretty much gone down. It was quite dark, and so you really couldn't see too well. But that's okay. You can see well enough. And so hot dogs, as I said, was on the menu. And for my brother-in-law, I had nothing to do with this, but for poor Jeremiah, somebody said, hey, Jeremiah, I have a hot dog for you that I made for you. You know, you're so busy. He, he was. He was juggling kids and putting up tents and the whole thing. Here, let me do you a favor. Oh, great. I mean, he was hungry. Took a big bite of that hot dog. You know something's coming. It wasn't a hot dog. It was a cattail. It wasn't a fresh cattail, it was kind of an old one that just kind of got really pithy and just <laughs> What is this? I remember my own experience camping and we were having haystacks. I think it was for Sabbath lunch or something. And there's, you know, haystacks are good anytime, but then when you get out into the woods, everything tastes better in the woods, isn't it right, Andrew? Everything's better in the woods. So we're in the woods and there's everything spread out. And uh, I just remember on this particular occasion, I was just really hungry, and I just happened to, to go first. Everybody's kind of being bashful. I thought, well, I'm not going to be bashful. So I went through, and I got my beans, and I put them on, you know, the chips and the whole thing, went through my whole line. I was really looking forward to this. First bite. First one through lunch. First bite. And I, I bite down on something that's like, this is weird. It was kind of a chewy, soft, but then you kind of penetrated and crunched through it, and then there was a little bit of this sweetness. I thought, I just ate like a slug or something. This is terrible. 
what is in these beans? And, you know, you're trying to, like, do I spit this out? Do I keep? And with every bite, no, this is wrong. And a blah. You know what it was? Some uh, individual, I think it was my uncle and my brother, cut up a piece of dried apricot and put it into the chili beans. Chili beans and dried apricot don't go together, especially when you're eating this out in the open air with bugs and everything else. Ugh. You know, these are kind of more light things, but the question still remains, what do you do when somebody gets one over on you, or worse, maybe it's actually out of real frustration with you, or they just want to do something to harm you. How do you respond? Do you think about payback? There's all kinds of expressions with that, too. Payback stings, or payback this, or don't cross me, or if you do, and all these threats, and is that what the Christian should do? Is that how the Christian should respond with retaliation, with revenge? You know, there's whole movie plots, by the way, based on this idea of revenge. There was a young person over here who said, no, who said that? Amen. But there are whole movie plots based on revenge. And, and sometimes the, the theme of some of these films are like, I'm going to do nothing else in life. I'm going to put everything else aside and I'm going to zero in on getting my revenge. Is that a senseless uh, purpose to life? I mean, you, you finally get your revenge after I don't know how many years you've been plotting this thing. Do you really feel better? All right, so we're going back to our Bibles. I hope you brought your Bibles. We're still in 1 Samuel. We've marched all the way through to chapter 23. And uh, you may recall that David is a fugitive at this point. He's on the run. And in chapter 23, verse 14, it says, Saul sought David every day. And at the end of chapter 23, this is going back some time ago, but we saw David coming down off the high ground, off of a position that he was in, in, in better, better suited for battle. But rather than keep the high ground, he flees and he runs but David is in hot pursuit, and very quickly he is surrounded. Now, of course, David, I think, if he were to engage with Saul, could easily take Saul, right? You remember what they chanted earlier? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. But David is choosing to not engage in this fight. And last time we really looked at the end of, of chapter 23, David is now surrounded. Everything is heightening for this climax. He's trusting in the Lord. Lord, what are you going to do? And at the last possible moment, Saul gets called away. The Philistines are attacking back home. We've got to go. Saved by the bell, we could say. More appropriately, saved by the Lord. And so David is still trying to lay low as we enter into chapter 24. And so let's begin now in chapter 24, beginning verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Verse 2, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. How many did I say? 3,000. That's a lot of people. He took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, not just anybody, chosen. 
and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Another phrase for En Gedi, really. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and, and Saul went in to attend to his needs, and David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Now, En Gedi, you need to understand, is a small oasis in essentially a wasteland. I mean, if you've ever been in the area of the Dead Sea, it's not just the sea that's dead. Everything around it seemingly is dead. It's barren. It's a wasteland. In fact, it's 1,300 feet below sea level, and there's nothing living in that water or the Dead Sea. So salty. There's no plants in the Dead Sea. I mean, it, it looks good. I've floated in it. It looks, you know, and, and I guess it's refreshing, but you can't put it in your mouth. But there is this little river that comes down. I mean, you have the Dead Sea down low, but then up on the, the west side, I guess, there's this really high plateau, and then it kind of filters down through, and En Gedi is this place where a stream runs down through, and it's beautiful. I mean, this is part of the rocks and the caves, and it's a national park now, and you can go and you can hike, and it would be a lot of fun on this Sabbath afternoon to go hike in this valley, because not just the caves and the crevices, but they are these wild goats, these ibex, they call them, that are there. And I imagine there's lots of birds there because of the water. There's no other water around. And so this is an oasis, a gathering point for anything that wants to live in this hot place. And this water is wonderful. And so David is here hiding in one of these many, many, many caves and being preserved through this fresh water that's coming through this valley. Now, I stayed right next to that, and our tour didn't go up into this uh, little cavern, if you will, or this little valley, but next time I go, that is something that is top on my list to do. Which cave did Saul go into? Which cave is the one that's being referred to here in that little valley? I don't know, but my imagination would sure like to try and figure it out. There are some guesses that it might be this cave here. I can't really picture it well. There's a video on YouTube that I found, and this guy is talking. He's not trying to say this is the one, but it's an idea that I perhaps hadn't thought of before. There's all this water that's kind of cascading and trickling, but any sound in the cave echoes, does it not? And so you hear all of this noise. And oftentimes I've wondered, how could David sneak up on somebody in a cave, cut the garment, and get away undetected? Well, if it's dark, if there's a lot of sound of water, in fact, it almost sounds a little bit like a waterfall in that cave, I imagine with all the you could more easily sneak up and do whatever you needed to do. And so let's continue with this story. Better back up to verse 3. So Saul goes in to attend to his needs. What are we talking about here? Well, some people think that maybe he was taking a rest from the heat, and perhaps that is the case. I think most agree, though, he's just taking care of business. I'll be right back. Nature is calling. I'm going to duck in here for a little bit of privacy and just be patient for a moment. 
Drink some of the water, refresh yourselves, and I'll be right back in just a moment. So while I do want you to picture the scene, I don't want you to picture it too closely, but the idea of vulnerability, right, comes to the forefront. But here's the, the key part. David and his men just happened to be in the recesses of this very cave. This is what you call our lucky day, David. In fact, how do they respond? Verse 4, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as seems good to you. What happens between verse 4, the first part, and the last part of verse 4? What happens in David's mind? This is the day. David, you've been running. You've been on the hunt. He has done, he has thrown how many spears at you now that you've had to dodge? You've had to flee from home, leave your position, leave your job, leave your wife, try to run to your spiritual mentor. He follows you there and you have to keep going after that. You've been on the run forever. You're supposed to be the next king and you can end it right now. This is your ticket out of the cave. This is the shortcut. And everybody is standing behind him saying, do it. Do it. Do it. This is it. Do you want to do it or you want me to? How long do you suppose David entertained the thought of how easy it would be? We're going to read here in a moment how he comes and takes a piece of his robe. Is he wearing the robe? Did he perhaps put it to the side? But it would have been just as easy to say, instead of cutting this, I'm just going to, and it's done. But how does David respond to their push? I mean, let's be clear. Saul had already proven himself time and time and time again to be an inept leader. You know what's the hardest leader to follow? An inept leader. They're not capable. In fact, they make poor decisions, bad decisions, terrible decisions. And we ask ourselves, how in the world did they get into this position of leadership? And how is it that I am stuck trying to follow this clown? I know you've never thought those things. But Saul had lost his credibility among the people. And we could always reason. Couldn't we always reason and justify in our minds the best thing for God's people would be if I just ended it now, right here? Doesn't the end justify the means? Didn't God already say, David, you're to be the next king? Let's just get on with it already. Not to mention David's temptation to get even. No, I imagine the temptation was there for revenge. To read God's will into the circumstances. To disrespect someone in place of authority. And so here David's put to the test. In fact, here we see clearly revealed the kind of man David is. It's one of those moments that his true character is revealed. Because if had David at this juncture killed Saul... And it would have been all too easy. He would have shown that he was no better than Saul. 
who if the circumstances had been reversed, he would have delighted to kill David at that moment. It would have been done. I can't help but think of Satan challenging Job's goodness, contending that Job would curse God if certain blessings were removed and certain restrictions were placed upon him. And so to meet such a charge, God permitted Satan to afflict Job, to prove false this idea of the adversary's statement as well as the uprightness of his servant. Like Job, David passes the test. It says, Behold, this is the day the Lord spoke of. Verse 4, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and he's got his knife out but he secretly cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And now when it happened afterward, David's heart troubled him. Why did David's heart trouble him? Well, it tells us if we keep reading, because he had cut Saul's robe. He didn't injure Saul. There's no scratch, not even a pinprick. He didn't even flick his ear. He just takes a corner of his robe, his royal robe, probably a high-dollar robe. And that conscience of David is pricked in that moment. Patriarchs and Prophets 661 says, But his conscience smote him afterward because he had even marred the garment of the king. Question, how sensitive is your conscience? How clearly do you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? How attuned are you to spiritual things, to biblical things? Here's a hard one. How much respect do you have for those who don't deserve it? Friends, when God is in control, our conscience will be tender, in tune with God's Word, in tune with the holiness of God. And we know how this story plays out. And you can say it was all part of a master plan. Maybe it was. I don't know. But the fact that it troubled him tells me he had a hard time wondering if this was the right thing to do. Did I disrespect God's anointed even in this small, seemingly petty act of cutting his robe? And I wonder if what follows isn't in part a confession an apology. I don't know. We continue on. Verse 6. I like this part too. And he, David, said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And so, what's David's reasoning? Was the king a poor leader? Unquestionably so. Did Saul have the genuine respect of the people? Absolutely not. Was it David's responsibility to make all of that right? No, it wasn't. That was God's job, to do it in his way, in his time. And you might not have any respect for the Saul in your life, but if you are like David, you will act differently. You will respect the person out of respect 
for God. What did Joseph say? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? What did David say? The Lord forbid. He is the Lord's anointed. And so not only does David not act in taking his life, but he says, you're not going to do it either. May I suggest that's a big part of true leadership? Actually leading the group that is around you? He could have said, I don't want blood on my hands, but by all means, be my guest. Who wants to be my number one? And in case this comes up, I didn't tell you it was okay. In fact, I told you not to. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he tells his guys, we're not going there. We're not touching him. We're not going to take matters into our own hands in this way. He is God's anointed. God will deal with him. Verse 7, we read, So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to raise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. All of this happens and he has no idea. He feels better. He's ready to go after David some more, but has no clue that all of David and, his, David and all of his men are behind him in the cave. Verse 8, we read, David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord the King. A couple things there. And there's a lot of different places where very quickly, Saul and his men might be down over here, and David could raise up on this rock over here. They could communicate, but there's no way Saul's getting to David or vice versa. And so I imagine in my mind something like that, and, and these craggy rocks and everything else this is the best picture that I could find. But David is somehow way up here, untouchable now, but he gets the attention, and notice what he calls Saul. My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. So here David's not only calling him by the name of respect, but he is bowing down before his king, his leader. And David said to Saul, and in what follows here is the longest recorded quotation by both David, 114 Hebrew words, and Saul, 67 Hebrew words, found in the whole book of 1 Samuel. Obviously, this is important. Just because of the sheer amount of space devoted to both quotations suggests the importance. And we find here in David's words a lot of passion and eloquence along with a plea for reconciliation. Perhaps the strongest plea for reconciliation we find in all of Scripture. Let's read through it. Verse 9, David says to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? What has he done there? He could have used the word you. Saul, why do you? But who does he cite? Why do you listen to the words of men, of these individuals, trying to make it more palatable, more gracious, less accusatory. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Giving the benefit of the doubt even. Verse 10, look this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave and someone urged me to kill you. Doesn't even name the people there. Just someone. 
But my eye spared you, and I said I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, the corner of your robe is in my hand, and in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me. Another key. Let the Lord judge. And let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. Does it remind you of another verse? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let the Lord be judged. Let him figure this out. But I'm not going to take your life. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I could have. Clearly, I could have. But I didn't. And I want you to know that I won't. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. We see in all of that respect. As he says, my Lord, the king. We see that he seeks to diffuse the situation. Doesn't accuse Saul of spreading lies. Those people, why do you listen to them? And then he pledges allegiance three different times to never harm him. Verse 16, so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? That's just something you say when you're nervous and you don't know what to say. (laughs) Is that that you, David? Is 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 that your voice that I hear? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. In that moment, sadly it's a brief moment, but in that moment, Saul's heart is touched. He weeps. And then he says to David, verse 17, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. I imagine it did David's heart good to hear him confess those words. And you've shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me. That's just what what would happen. A new king comes along and he has to eliminate everyone from the old line. He says, promise me you won't do that, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And there's the interchange. The call to make amends. 
Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he, will, he makes even his enemies to live at peace with him. Who are your enemies? Have you been feeding fuel to the fire? Oh, yeah? Yeah, I got your email, and here's another one. Bing! When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to live at peace with him. A few lessons to live by. First, don't let revenge bring you down to their level. Pretty simple idea. If we could just follow it. Do you know what he did? Do you know what she did? What she said? I'm going to do this. I'm going to be justified in doing it. No, you're just going to look just as foolish as they are. And just as low. I mean, essentially, you're entering into the same tactics, the same approach, the same everything. If you're truly a better person, take the high road. Number two, respect your enemies. Why? Out of honor for God. They don't deserve my respect. Maybe they don't. But if you're a Christian, out of honor for God, you're going to respect them anyway. Even my enemies? Yes, especially your enemies. How do you think you can live at peace with your enemies? You treat them with respect. You treat them with kindness. You treat them in ways that they don't deserve. It's called grace. I thought you were a Christian. Number three, don't only do the right thing. Bring the group with you. Bring the group with you. Tell them, look, we're not going to do this, and here's why. We know better. We're better than that. If you're in a position of leadership, lead. You may not think you're in a position of leadership, but somebody's listening to you. So lead. Fourthly, Seek to defuse the situation. David could have been hot when he says, hey, Saul, look what I could have done. But if you look at the language there, he is very intentional about trying to be disarming. So don't seek to blow up the situation, but defuse it. And lastly, even if they will not, pledge to only do what is right. I wish that this is where Saul says, you know what, I'm done. Dave, here's the crown. You're a better man, and it's over, but it's not over. Not for Saul. In fact, there's a quotation I had in here, but I ended up taking it out. But I'll paraphrase it for you. Maybe I should have left it in. It was the idea that Saul had come to a sense of repentance, but he started listening to the voices again and to his mind, and he became worse off than he was before because light had been shown to him. He accepted it, and then he pushed it away, and he was worse. That can be us, too. We accept light, and then we push it away, and we become worse. But notice number five. Even if they will not, pledge to only do what is right. They don't deserve it. Of course they don't deserve it. But if you're a Christian, do the right thing. Out of honor for your God. I can't help but think of this story of Desmond Doss. We've talked about him before, and you know about Desmond. But it just... Blows my mind. Here's this young man who wants to go and be a conscientious objector. No weapons. I don't want to hurt people. I want to help people. And the ridicule that he got over and over and over. 
essentially from day one, he's kneeling by his bed to pray. You would think they would show him some respect. Not at all. Boots, heavy army boots being thrown at Doss across the room, landing next to him, on him, around him, jeering, obscenities, catcalls, hoots, derision. He's frightened. He's confused. But he stays where he is. He stays on his knees. He says, the last person I want to offend is God, and I'm going to be praying to my God. Finally, the sergeant yells to the men to quiet down. Doss finishes his prayer, crawls into bed, eyes glistening with tears of loneliness and pain. How did I end up here? What hurt more than anything was hearing the third commandment being shattered all around him virtually every day. He had never heard such disrespect in the name of Jesus as this. Never had people, never had he been around people that were so brazen. In fact, they, one individual even called Doss, the nickname was Holy Jesus. And he cringed every time they used that name. Caused him great distress. And then there's a Sabbath issue. You're a coward. You won't be there to help us on Sabbath. He refused to carry a gun. And they said, you don't have our backs. Again, you're a coward. We don't want you to be with us in combat. One man even said from his platoon, if we go into combat, you're not coming back alive because I will shoot you myself, he says. And everybody laughs. <laughs> Talk about bullying. At one point, he's beat up in his own barrack so badly that he's irre irrecognizable. You can't make out who it is. Everything is swollen and there's blood and everything crusted everywhere. How does Doss respond? By essentially not responding. He's quiet. He's walking through. They know who's guilty and who did what. He's looking them all in the eye and he just goes back and does his thing. Think of Doss. Don't re let revenge lower you to their level. Respect your enemies. Why? Out of honor for God. Don't only do the right thing, bring the group with you. And you'll see how he does that in a moment. Seek to diffuse the situation. He doesn't argue. Even if they will not pledge to only do what's right. That's what Doss lived by. That's what I'm going to do. By God's grace, that's what I'm going to do. So it's on Okinawa, Hacksaw Ridge. Overwhelming situation. They climb up this wall and they get to the other side and they're ready for them and they're just nailing them and, and they call for backup. But it's, it's a bloodbath. It's terrible. War is terrible. Everybody scurries back down over the ledge. We're out of here. The whistle's been blown or whatever the thing. Let's go. Retreat. Retreat. Doss is the only one that doesn't retreat. Why? Because there are men down. And so among shots and everything else, he's dodging. He's, he's moving as best he can, praying the entire time, Lord, just give me one more. Lord, just give me the strength to get one more. And I can't imagine Almost brings me to tears. Putting guys on his shoulders and walking. Guys are heavy. He's not a big guy. And so he carries one over to the edge. Single-handedly lowers him down over the edge. I'm exhausted already. Lord, help me get one more. Help me get one more. These are the same guys that were throwing boots. That were calling him names. Cursing at him. Help me get one more. Grabs another, lowers it down. Grabs another, lowers it down. Grabs another, lowers it down. Even Japanese that are down, they need help. I'm going to take them over and I'm going to lower them down too. 75. I can't wrap my mind around how all night long, under heavy fire, he says, Lord, help me have one more. Just one more. Just one more. 
Shouldn't that be the mantra of the Christian? I mean, the, Lord, the, the world persecutes constantly. It ridicules. It mocks. Beats us up. Throws us under the bus. Kicks us a couple more times. And then we just, in the face of that, as the Christian, by the grace of Jesus Christ, we go forward and we say, Lord, help me get one more. 75 people, alone. And to my knowledge, Desmond Doss is still the only man to win the Congressional Medal of Honor while serving under conscientious objector status. The guy that everybody said, we don't need you. We don't want you. It kind of reminds me of that great reversal at the end of time. The one that's been mocked for so long. Ridiculed for so long. But we don't find here in the page of Scripture it says, hey, they did you wrong, go get them. What does it say? Vengeance is mine. Why is vengeance the Lord's? Because you're going to mess it up. I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to do it in my humanness, and I'll mess it up. I promise I will. I've done it before. I could surely do it again. God says, let me take it. Let me do it. Let me take care of things. I promise I can take care of them better than you can. Vengeance is mine. Don't let the revenge bring you down. Respect your enemies out of the honor of God. Bring the group with you. Seek to defuse the situation. Pledge to only do what is right. And who knows, maybe your enemy will bless you. Did you notice that? These are the words of Saul. May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. That's his enemy. And if you put away revenge and you show respect, you seek to diffuse, pledge to only do what's right, who knows? Maybe your enemies will one day bless you too and say, I've been wrong, you're right. And so David and Doss are both dynamic models to all of us who feel tempted to retaliate, to hurt someone who has injured us, when we're tempted to undermine leadership or authority, here's a role model we can emulate. In Romans 12, 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then, of course, I can't help but think of this prime example. Talk about betrayed by one of his own with a kiss. And then they mocked him, put a crown of thorns upon his head. They cursed in his face. They spit in his face. When's the last time somebody spit in your face? And let me just remind you, we didn't take his life. No, he gave it. There's a difference. I think of the verse, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners... While we were yet vile, while we were yet selfish, while we were just literally the scum of the earth, Christ saw potential in you. And so he didn't say, you know what, I'm just going to destroy the whole lot of them. No, he said, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. He says, I'm going to die in the midst of their shame. I'm going to die. How does the song go? He could have sent 10,000 angels. He could have sent a lot more than that to destroy the world and set him free. He could have sent 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and for me. Friends, if anyone was entitled to revenge, to vengeance, it was Jesus. You're absolutely right. He didn't do anything wrong. But he showed his love by dying in our place, by allowing himself to die in our place. What kind of God is this? What kind of love is this? 
And it's the same Jesus that says, vengeance is mine. Let me take care of it. You'll make a mess of it. Give it to me. Psalm 25, 5 says, For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Friends, will you place vengeance squarely in the hands of God? I mean, we're not talking about some cattail hot dog or some dehydrated fruit in the haystacks. We're talking about major stuff now. Somebody has done you wrong, and they did it big time. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Allow him to be the God of your salvation. Wait on him all the day. I promise you'll be better off for it. And he longs to give you strength, to give me strength, to take the high road. And friends, that's only going to be accomplished by the power of God in our lives, period. By daily surrendering to him. By daily asking him to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Are you persecuted? If so, will you pledge this morning with me to stay near the heart of God and allow him to do something only he can do? Dear Heavenly Father, for some here this morning, they have been living in the camp of frustration and anger, resentment. And they've been wanting revenge, and they've been counting the days. But Lord, we have seen today in your word that that will simply destroy us, that that will only make matters worse. And the better thing to do is to give it over to you. And by your grace to show them love and respect, graciousness, even forgiveness, because you have shown us all of those things. And how can we turn and be angry at our brother or our sister when you have been so gracious to us? And so, Lord, our hands are clenched, our fists are clenched. I pray that we will open those clenched hands and let it go to give it to you, to forgive them and leave it up to you to repay however you see fit. Thank you for this story. Thank you for this example. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that seeks to help us in this most impossible task, but we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.